Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Fight No More consists of 12 interlocking stories set in Los Angeles that describe a broken family through the homes they inhabit. Lydia Millett is the Penn award-winning author of 11 works of literary fiction, including Sweet Land of Heaven and Magnificence, which have been New York Times Notable Books and Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award finalists. She lives in Arizona. Zandi Hartig was Nurse Story on Children's Hospital on Adult Swim for seven years. On film, she appeared in Wanderlust, Role Models, and The Ten. On the web, she was an actor and producer on Wayne Days. She co-starred in Giving Up, which won the 2017 New York Television and Film Festival. And most recently, she was Melissa Henry in Mosaic, directed by Steven Soderbergh for, on HBO. We're delighted to have Lydia Millett and Sandy Hartig with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Hi, so I'm Lydia, and um, I will give you a short backstory as to why these two people are up here in front of you. I had to do a reading, and I thought it would be more fun if Sandy read with me, and she's an actor. So that's the story. Um, we, story? It's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, so we were in college together, and we've just been friends ever since, and we sometimes get to see each other every now and then. Is this good level for the mic, or? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're just going to both read bits of a couple of stories from this collection. Uh, it's a collection where there's a real estate agent and a lot of different people that she encounters in LA as she goes about her job and her private life. And I thought that I would read a bit from uh, a story called Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is about this angry kind of teenage guy. He's angry because his father has recently left his mother for a younger woman that he got pregnant, and in this, it's not the beginning of the story. In the beginning of the story, he was furiously masturbating in his house while the real estate agent was touring it with some potential buyers, um, and he sort of timed this to embarrass everyone because <laughs> because he doesn't want the house to be sold, and he doesn't want to go live in a crappy apartment. And I'm probably going to drink a lot of water. So I will read, the masturbation is finished because I wish to spare the delicate sensibilities. And I'm sure none of you enjoy that kind of thing. Uh, and he gets this idea. He's angry at his father. He loves his mother. He's sorry for his mother. And he gets this sort of stoned notion in his head to go buy her something. That was the plan. Nothing fancy, plain and simple. House full of flowers. Not cut flowers, because they die too fast. They die all at once, turn the house into a brown forest of death. Too depressing. No, flowers in pots, that plant place she liked on sunset, Silver Lake. He'd bring them back in truckloads. What did he have, three hours or four if she worked late? Maybe he'd have them delivered. Money was no object, because he's using her credit card. When she walked in, a thousand blooms. No gray or brown there, orange, yellow, and red. Transit Umbra looks permanent. The shadow passes, but the light remains. He likes Latin and Sid Vicious. And porn. A part of her, sure, 
would be quite amply pissed. The rest of her would remember even when he was gone, moved out, too old to live at home, for all the time after when she would have to be alone. He went down to the garage, took the keys off the hook, and got into the work truck. The only solid thing Lord Vader had left them. Waited as the garage door cranked up, waited longer as a nanny passed on the sidewalk with a stroller in front of her and a little kid toddling behind. The rich parents were the only even half-smart ones, outsourcing. He'd never gotten what was in it for parents. You saw them everywhere, fussing around their kids, doing dumb, small shit. Always bent over fastening things, unfastening them, wiping the offspring, <laughs> pushing or pulling them, sitting them in small chairs, rolling them, swinging them, feeding them with small spoons. Servants for no money. There was a word for that. <laughs> Weird how everyone wanted to act wild and in the next breath tame. It happened overnight. You partied, then you got married and turned in your balls. You lined up to turn them in, eagerly packaged them, tying a bow on top. If you didn't have kids, there was still a chance, maybe. Because even married, as long as you didn't have kids, you could keep doing drugs. Go out a lot. Nursery, it said on the sign, like the little plants had their own rattles and cribs. But inside, it was disappointing. There weren't as many flowers as he'd expected. There were mostly leaves and stems green parts. Even the flowers were mostly lame. Not like Starburst, not like Glamour, they just sat there. God damn, nothing was ever fucking splendid. Never splendid, god damn. Was he supposed to go home with a bunch of ass bushes? Pots of ass dirt? Bullshit. He kicked a pot, hurt his toe, looked closer. The blooms on it were seedy and bluish. Agapanthus, Stevie's wonder. Sun to part sun hybrid. Seriously, a plant name for Stevie Wonder? Sick. Jeremy? No way, nuh-uh. The new wife, Laura, pregnant as shit. Uh, he said, grunting ape-like. Jeremy, hey, it's so great to see you. You still haven't been by the house. What are you doing at a garden store? She reached out and hugged him, her bag sliding off her shoulder and hitting him as the baby bump nudged where it should never go. The floor slanted down, plus she was just the wrong amount shorter than him. So wrong. <laughs> Through a veil of skin and blubber, his fetal half-sister was barely three inches from his teeth. <laughs> he looked past the new wife's shoulder at a fat frog. It was a planter thing made out of china or whatever, and out of it stuck a bunch of those ugly flowers you saw on cement doorsteps. Wrinkled, a pylon color orange. The frog's bulgy, heavy-lidded eyes made it look sly and evil, like it would slurp out a tongue and gulp your head. Nothing, he said, pulling back. Dad here? At work, I wanted to surprise him with some new plantings. I mean, I'm not actually putting them in. I can't even touch my toes. Just buying them for the gardener. How about you? You running an errand? It was wrecked anyway. Dumb idea. He shook his head. I should go. Hey, will you do me a favor first, she asked and winced like asking her a bit. Can you come with me? Pull that cart and maybe load my plants into the car? Five minutes, that's it, I promise. He'd come for the sake of his mother. Now here he was serving public enemy number one. Mm -hmm. Normally he didn't say much to the new wife, safer that way. She acted nicey-nice, plus she actually seemed to mean it. So it was hard to hate her guts when she got all up in your grill. Ergo, he kept his trap shut. Beer sap it? 
Qui pauca loquitur, he is wise, who talks little. But now she cornered him. He grabbed the handle of the plant wagon, walking behind her to the parking lot. It reminded him of the old radio flyer he used to pull around his stuffed animals in. His favorite was a camel that smelled bad from having its foot sucked. <laughs> Where had the camel gone? Of course she got too old for toys and didn't use them anymore, all that was fine. But where was the camel? In a landfill somewhere. He loaded the plants for her. They were boring. In the background, the child bride chattered on about him coming to dinner, how the dadster would be, quote, over the moon to see him. Total bullshit, his father hadn't been over the moon in his life. Over a slut's ass cheeks, maybe. <laughs> his eyes were dead like a shark's. Flowers filling the house, what a cheesy idea that had been. Before, it seemed kick-ass, now cheesy and stupid. Clearly a Mary Jane moment. Slamming down the SUV hatch, he saw a blur of movement along some bushes near his feet. A cat, small, gray, with patchy fur, looked homeless. Did it smell homeless? Could a cat get B.O.? Oh my god, is that a kitten? She went scrabbling after it, but she couldn't bend over far enough. Chick was basically a human water balloon dangling and wobbling on a stick. <laughs> Stand back, that thing could burst. She made a wheezing noise, then staggered sideways against her car door. He'd asked if she was okay, but it wasn't in the bylaws. Whenever it randomly occurred to him to act normal slash human to her, he thought of the dadster hitting that. Made him wish she had the talent of spontaneous puking. <laughs> Slowly she righted herself, mouth breathing. That poor little guy's gonna get run over, she said. Don't you think, all that traffic? Like 20 feet from here? Oh my god, it's just a kitten. It was small, sure, but looked ancient. A cat G Gandalf, a Merlin, a wrinkled graybeard. If it was human, it'd be bent over and carrying some kind of gnarled staff, gumming and mumbling. Luckily it wasn't. Say what you like about a decrepit cat, it was still better than a decrepit human. It faced away from them, tail-waving, head under a bush, and then turned around with something in its mouth. Oh, said Laura, oh no, is that a little mouse? <laughs> Child bride thought fleabag feral cats were cute kittens. She thought moldy hot dogs were itty-bitty mice. She thought his father was a great guy. He could see the package greasy litter under the hedge. It's like a Hebrew national, he said. She looked relieved. Hey, but won't you come over later? Please, just come have dinner with us. It'd be so great. He shrugged. She kept staring at him and smiling, all hopeful, like she was hanging on his answer. Finally, he did a half nod, grudging. That way, if she tried to hold him to it, he had a way out. What did they call it in the CIA? Deniability. Yeah, plausible deniability. On the way home, he saw a billboard with a puppy on it. Maybe that was what he should have gotten, a puppy. His mother was allergic to cats, but not dogs. His father never let her have a dog when they were married, but she was always drawn to other people's. Scratched them behind the ears, obsessively bought gourmet treats for them. Once she'd driven a platter of leftovers to the pound to give to the homeless pit bulls, waiting to be put to sleep. But the pounds didn't want it, something about too much cream. So she threw out the platter right there at the pound. After she said to him, I mean, this is exactly what's wrong with the world. Maybe what she needed wasn't anything like flowers. Maybe that was like a band-aid. Some people let their babies cry for hours just to teach them to shut the fuck up. Probably worked. But then the babies grew up and turned into psychos. Still, maybe what she needed was tough love. It was too late for her to turn psycho anyway. 
Late onset psycho wasn't a thing. Her shrink didn't do shit was what it sounded like to him whenever she told him the stuff the shrink said. Her shrink just basically agreed with her. He drove the truck into the garage again. Her car was there. She was home. In the kitchen, she stood by the sink. She had cooking stuff out, a pan and some noodles, but she wasn't cooking yet. The water was running and running, just flowing right down the drain, but all she did was stand staring out the window, her hand frozen on the tap. You'd think something amazing was happening outside, like a naked marathon. I'm going over there, he said abruptly. He opened the fridge, peered around for sodas. She always said they were bad for his skin, but he'd stashed a couple cans. Going? she asked, her little girl voice distant, to his house for dinner. The tap was still running and she didn't turn around. He caught a glimpse of the telltale red and white logo pushed aside, a lead burrito and tin foil closed the door, popped the tab. The dadster was an asshole, fully certified, but life went on. Actually, it could be funny to watch his dickhead personality play out, like comedy. If you put yourself outside it, like you were watching a movie, then shit, it could really crack you up. Step outside, Holmes, then laugh like a hyena. Plus, the child bride tried to be nice to him 24-7. That baby mama worked hard. She had fresh skin, a peaches and cream complexion. Even fat with the fetal intruder. She was a yummy mummy. No one could deny it. He could step outside himself and laugh, but his mother could never. She didn't know how. He went up behind her, reached out with his left hand, and turned the water off. She was still staring at the window. Any second she'd start crying. He knew the signs. I went out to get you flowers, he said. He made him nervous to say it now. It was so hokey, but he forced himself. But none of them were good enough, so I didn't get any. Sorry, anyway, then that Laura girl showed up and made me carry plants to her car and nagged me for like 10 straight minutes to come to their house tonight. I had to say yes. She basically tricked me. It was a lie, but a white lie. Still, enough tough love for now. Just going over there was bad enough. It's good, honey, she whispered, nodding. No, you should go. It's healthy. But he was supposed to be angry, wasn't he? He did the angry. She did the sad. Division of labor. It's good for you to spend time with your father, she said. Turning away, she lifted the back of a hand to her face, maybe wiping a tear, maybe not. Couldn't see. I will, but I don't want to, he said. That at least he could give her. It wasn't a house full of flowers, but better than nothing. You're sweet, but you don't have to hate him to be loyal to me. Go, have a nice meal, and if you have to get stoned, wait till you get home. I will, he promised. The dadster typically smelled it on his breath and went Republican. He droned on about how stoners would never bring home the big bucks. Did he always plan to be an underachiever? How many spare brain cells did he have to waste by killing them? He would 100% wait. He thought the words, a solemn dignity, like a bolt from the blue, inspiration, he would be dignified from now on. His earlier midday self, first jacking off, then flaunting it, was hereby dismissed. <laughs> that was the old him. This was the new. A solemn dignity. A second cousin of his with Down syndrome had gotten baptized as an adult, if you could call her that, when her mind was eight years old till death. Point was, she wanted to be Catholic, though her whole family was regular wasps, because she liked the saints, the stained glass windows, and as his mother said, gruesome depictions of the crucifixion. <laughs> so she worked hard to learn the lines or whatever, and the parents sent out fancy invitations with gold letters stamped on them, and he had to go. His mother made him wear a suit. At the time, he'd been pissed before they went, because if the cousin hadn't had Down syndrome, he could have stayed at home. Nobody would have given a crap. Baptism? Teenage whim, they would have said. You could bet on it. 
but she did have Down syndrome, so on went the tie that felt like it was choking him. In the church, she was dressed in a snow-white robe and smiled without end. She beamed. His whole life, he could swear, he'd never seen anyone look that happy. Do you renounce Satan, the author and prince of sin? I do. I renounce him, he muttered under his breath, exiting the kitchen with a soda can in his grip. What, sweetie? Nothing. And all his works? I do. hard to live up to. I also wanted to recite a poem Lydia wrote for me in college. <laughs> Zandy is sweet like a bee. Thank you very much. I've never attained a level of that person. <laughs> no one's ever said anything so nice to me. Okay. I have two pairs of glasses and one of them is better than the other so I just bear with <laughs> No, which one? <laughs> uh, I like this part because the grandmother sounds a lot like Lydia. <clears throat> On the shelf. Uh, should I explain what the context is? Yeah, you think of the context. Okay, so you're, you're okay with it. yeah, the uh, grandmother um, is uh, moving into her son's house. The son is the father that Lydia was just talking about, the asshole father. Um, and also, the grandson plays a role, small role in this, and also the trophy wife. Yeah. So the so the trophy wife is showing uh, the grandmother um, the new place where she's going to stay, which is like a back back house in back of the grand house. At times, she thought she should have been an interior decorator instead of a scholar. She would have failed, needless to say, too many harsh judgments. She would have tried to rule her clients instead of satisfy them, ride roughshod over their taste correct, uplift, and educate. She would have been as popular as headlights. No wonder she'd thrown in her lot instead with the Nazis. On the cream-colored sectional sat Laura, reading a pregnancy book that had the heft of an annotated King James. They put them through their paces these days, the wealthy mothers. You had to read a Bible-sized parenting manual, and make no mistake, its commandments were stern. Thou shalt not eat unpasteurized cheese. Laura looked up, smiled sweetly, a good-natured girl, despite being a trophy, and stood, offering a wide array of beverages up to and including a fine Hendrick G&T. But she couldn't stop walking now on her way to the guest house. No, her progress would not be impeded. You know what it's like, she told Laura, who had stood up and padded nervously beside her, belly leading. On one, one hand hovered midair as though to prop her up in the event of a sudden timber. Once I go down, I can't get up again. I've fallen and I can't get up. Remember that, that famous commercial? The girl shook her head, confused. Of course, that commercial was before her time. Born in 1991, literally half the age of the man she was married to. Paul, 
was already 48, but still didn't believe in old age. As far as he was concerned, decrepitude was something that happened to others, his mother, for instance. It would come as quite a shock when it happened to him. At that point, he'd have to marry a 12-year-old to feel young. <laughs> Let me get it, said Laura, and opened the door for her. She stepped onto the deck, slowly down the redwood stairs, slowly onto the flagstone path. The garden was beautiful, though it lacked her Norf Norfolk Island pine. It lacked her lupines and swells of Cal California poppies, but those could easily be ushered in. Her pine, though, she'd never see its like again. Once she moved here, after her own dear house was sold away, no tree she planted would grow tall before she disappeared. She'd take that G&T, she told Laura, as soon as she was situated in the guest house in a, on a chair. Thank you. Laura kept up a stream of quiet talk as they made their way down the path to the cottage, whose door stood open now. Paul had deposited her boxes square in the middle of the doorway, she could see, so that she'd have to steer around them. Laura said something about a stroller, then a swing, then a vibrating chair. Containers. Babies were mostly about buying polymers now. Feminism had taken the form of plastic. Arms are the best place for babies, she wanted to say. You don't need all that crap. In the small house, it was cool, and a fan turned slowly on the ceiling. Laura was surprisingly patient about holding up the pieces of framed art against the walls. She marked the walls carefully with a pencil once she was told where a piece should go. What's this one of, she asked. Remarkable image, shades of red, a golden amber, steel gray in the background. Oh, wow, is that black thing a swastika? Yes, she said. This is an original poster for the most famous of all the Nazi propaganda films by Leni Riefenstahl. You've heard of it, I'm sure, Triumph, Triumph of the Will. You're not afraid the swastika will, like, offend someone? Offend, she murmured. The girl made her shake her head inwardly, but she couldn't help liking her. Well, it's what I studied. Study. Still working on a paper or two. It's not an endorsement, dear. I had these pieces in my office, you see. They're part of my work, the art and the propaganda of fascism, the aesthetics. Maybe Paul had omitted to tell Laura that detail, how most of their relatives had perished in the gulag. She wouldn't put it past him. He was a guy with little time for history, even his own family's. Offend. She'd have her desk here. She'd recreate her study in miniature. She couldn't walk well, but she could still write. That soldier looks like he's holding the flag so awkwardly said Laura. It's weird how high his elbow is. The elbow was noticeably high. Well, bearing the standard of the thousand-year Reich wasn't a task for pansies, she told Laura, though technically, of course, it often had been. <laughs> I like this one a lot, said the girl, taking the next frame poster from the box. He's handsome, and the baby is so cute. Indeed, a distinguished grade mustache gentleman was holding up a baby against the blue sky. That's Joseph Stalin, she said. She said it kindly, she thought, not condescending, she hoped, just letting her know. But the name didn't ring a bell. Laura smiled and nodded as though a distant but welcome relation had been introduced. I adore how they dress old-fashioned babies in these lacy outfits, don't you? I saw one picture from like 18-something where even though it was a boy, it wore a long white dress. She held up Stalin near the door to the kitchenette. 
you could put it right here. The baby's flowers and that little flag go with the colors of the backslash tiles, don't you think? She heard herself sigh softly. Lately, she's been sighing a lot. It was a medical syndrome, among other things. She looked it up. It has to go over the desk like the other. For now, maybe, I, I don't want to press my luck, but do you think possibly that gin and tonic you mentioned? Oh, wow, of course, said Laura, pregnancy brain. Sorry, I'll be right back. Once she was installed, she'd have her own wet bar. She depended on the cocktail hour, felt actual tenderness on its approach. Every day, a grateful expectation. When it came to alcohol, you couldn't afford to be at someone else's mercy. <laughs> With Laura gone, she could soak in the mood of the place. It was three rooms plus a bathroom, not too small, and many windows. The rear ones, off the kitchen and bedroom, had a view of the tennis club over the fence. The beige of its buildings in the background, in the foreground, a red expanse of clay court. They're playing foosball, said Laura. She came in holding the tumbler, Paul and Jeremy. Last time she checked, the boy still hadn't been speaking to Laura. His policy had been straightforward when it came to his stepmother, silence. She was only eight years his senior. He spoke to her mostly in monosyllables. Barely spoke to his father either. His mother was deeply depressed, so it was scarcely a surprising resentment. But all in all, Laura, who'd been ignorant of Paul's first marriage when he first picked her up at a nightclub due to outright lies on his part and then had gotten knocked up, accepted it with good grace. So when are you thinking you'll move in? asked Laura. I'm not in a hurry, she told her. She took a sip of her drink and let it sit on her tongue. Paul's going to feel so much better once you're here with the old pair. I repainted the E-suite for her like Robin's egg blue. I'll show you later. It's good of you. I love that she'll help you out, but also double as a nanny. It's so great, right? So great. The Swedish au pair would be changing diapers at bookends of life, from Huggies to Depends. No, stop, too harsh. She wasn't there yet, so far at least. Incontinence wasn't her lot. Still, the au pair was a nursing student and six feet tall, Laura said. With big hands, she'd be nice enough but likely condescending as she managed the helpless, both newborn and ancient. Paul wanted her to move soon. He claimed he was afraid of a hip breaking when she was alone in her house, no one nearby to notice or help. Though something had rung false when he said that, come to think of it. Since when was he afraid of her poor health? He noticed, she, he noticed even her hospital stays in passing, at best. Maybe he was just embarrassed by the prospect of her keeling over, being found like an upside-down beetle, limbs helplessly pedaling. He set great store by appearances, her son. He'd been embarrassed by the sight of human weakness since he was a teenager, and she was a poster child of weakness now. Any idiot could see it. But maybe she underestimated him. Maybe she was the one who should feel ashamed of casting aspersions on the nobility of her child's feelings, a bad habit of hers, taking cheap shots, privately even. There was nothing funny, that 80s medical device commercial, for instance, just common stupidity, the sterile humor of mockery, easy mockery. It clung to the mind like a spider. He wanted her to move, but to move, she would have to destroy her home. You just relax, said Laura. I'll send one of the guys to get you when dinner's ready. We'll eat on the deck, okay? After Laura had gone back to the kitchen, she sat on the patio in front of the guest house, sipping her drink. Could have used another jigger, but it was nice enough. 
the sunset's pink bands were partly hidden by the trees that rose around the edges of the property, tall trees like oak and eucalyptus. She liked the trees, but she would miss having a wider view of the sky. When Jeremy came to get her, walking his slouching walk, his low-rider jeans a mere hairbreadth from exposure of his genitals, he wore his default sullen expression, but he grinned when she held out her glass to him. Only the watery dregs. He was well below drinking age, so he appreciated even the smallest gestures towards inebriation. She made it her business, when not in view of either of his parents, to parcel out booze to him. Gin was better than marijuana, after all, when it came to conversation. Thanks, Ram, he said, and slugged it back. You rule. He set the empty glass on the rim of a planter and bent down to help her up. He was a perceptive kid, despite the crude acting out. She saw the bad behavior as a tithe, not to a church, but to his pubescent demographic. He'd grow out of it. Meanwhile, he knew just the right angle and just the right speed at which to help raise her to her feet and the pressure of his hands was solid and comfortable, unlike his father's. Paul always had a more important place to be and didn't pay much attention. Usually he jerked her out of her chair so abruptly it made her bones rattle. Sure, her grandson liked her mostly because she slipped him liquor, but she could hardly blame him for that. Ahead, she saw the deck's table with places set for dinner, those massively oversized goblets. They were so trendy now you could barely buy anything else to drink your, your red from. Some pompous ass had told the foodies their wine was only acceptable when served in fish bowls with narrow sticks on the bottom. Well, they got their comeuppance when they had to tip the thing almost vertical to eke out the last sip. She'd once seen a hedge fund manager, some obnoxious colleague of Paul's, break the upper rim of a giant goblet on his nose in the middle of a buffoonish anecdote about a slutty girl served him right. She chortled loudly and perhaps a shade too long for good manners. Paul had covered his embarrassment by implying she was senile. <laughs> she could have made a retort, but a mother spared her son when it was in her power to do so. It had been her choice. In the low wind of twilight, paper napkins were fluttering, pinned down by cutlery. Cloth napkins would never occur to Laura. She might have seen some white ones in a restaurant once. The sun was throwing shadows against the wall of the house. She leaned on Jeremy, whose arm was thin but strong. Yesterday, he'd been bouncing in a swing, chubby and angelic, now tall and pimpled and rangy, with the ass crack revealing jeans and an addiction to pot and masturbation. But he was a good boy. She hoped the new baby was a girl, though, and had to admit she hoped she'd have a granddaughter this time around. In the long run, less heartbreak, because boys, and later men, regardless of their best intentions, often seemed to yearn for something they just never succeeded in defining. You pitied them for it. Your heart went out to them. But still, there was a chronic gap between what they should be and what they were capable of being. Into that gap, civilization fell. Not that Laura was much different in terms of her net effect. The footprint of Laura on the earth, a hostess at a nightclub, at the nightclub now, made less there than the au pair would cost, but they didn't just work for room and board these days. Frankly, she suspected Paul didn't trust Laura by herself with the baby. She was warm, so nice you felt guilty, and full of just about nothing. For her, it wasn't that history had faded, but that it had never existed to begin with. To a child, the world began anew every day. All life was the life of the self, the life of the now, and stories 
flitted about the margins like butterflies, but at least, unlike Paul, Laura did no harm. Could that be said for her? In old age and weakness, was all forgiven? Did it need to be? What had she done with her whole life? She'd studied them, the ones who took her parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, her baby sister, the ones who took so many. And after all, it was the United States they wanted to imitate. These easy living, these complacent and iniquitous United States. Hitler admired with deepest faith the way the New World conquerors had so effectively wreaked genocide upon the Indians, established the supremacy of whites. That recent study, what did it said? She kept up even if she wasn't a contender anymore. There might have been about 80 million of them, not 8 million, as early 20th century scholars used to guess, as many as 80 million. It was now estimated by the archaeologists, the demographers, who worked on historic population densities. Cabeza de Vaca, Lewis and Clark, their stories of the Indians they met so frequently, the size of the country. That meant the genocide in the Americas had taken maybe 10 million at the low end, 60 million at the high. The greatest genocide of all had happened here. War and foreign disease spread purposefully, often. Enslavement had failed with the Indians. They'd rather die than work the fields. Mostly they'd been nomads, of course. They didn't care for the white man's land, land work. So Africans had to be imported for the purpose of enslavement because the Indians didn't make good slaves. Hell, they didn't even make mediocre ones. The red man was no slave at all. They had refused to farm and been summarily erased. And the other unfortunates had been brought in under the whip. The black man agreed to work the fields for a time. But who spoke of the Indians? Where was it mentioned? In academic journals, that's where. Indian news, a handful of native activists. No one listened to them. There was a founding myth, and their petty quibbles existed only at the margins. And what had she done? She'd studied the art and design of imitators, the second or even third generation, the weak-minded copiers of race domination with their brilliant banners and their engineers of empire. She'd scrutinized their accoutrement, followed in their path with a microscope and a sad flutter of little red articles. This was the song she offered up to the fallen. She'd held it as an article of faith, faith that distance gave you insight, but distance gave you distance. She would have laughed at herself if she'd had it in her. Something faltered. A pang shot up her leg from the knee, a flicker of agony. She clutched Jemmy's arm harder. Graham, are you okay? I think there it was again, a long stab up to the joint of the hip, to the bursa, that sack in the joint full of fluid. She'd had shots in that sack, steroid shots when she was younger, a giddy girl in her late 60s. They never helped. Her whole leg was folding. She had the feeling she was hollow. What bones she had were made of glass. But terribly, the glass was sharp on each end, split into shards like a paintbrush whose bristles were pins, and those pins were embedded in the nerve-wrecked flesh. Jemmy spun and was standing in front of her, clasping her around the waist, bearing her full weight, must be. She sagged, but she didn't hit the flagstones. A high, panicky voice came into her ears. Alexa, Alexa. Vaguely, she remember asking Laura to call her Professor Korzak, though. But she, could she have, possibly? Or was that a dream? She hoped so. She couldn't have been so rude. She was rigorous, but rude only when provoked. 
not to the innocent. It hadn't been her upbringing. The true people of the book were seldom impolite. The young woman was running toward her, worried, poor dear. Not so fast, she wanted to say, you'll hurt the embryo. Wasn't that what they called it? Graham, can you hear me? Can you understand what I'm saying? She was unsure. Her bones were rubber, or they were spiky. She, they couldn't hold. The weakness receded suddenly as it had come on. I'm okay, thanks, Jenny. Thanks, thanks, dear. Please, just give me a moment. Steady there, Graham. It was just my, was my body. You're okay, Graham. Still a bit confused. A form of aphasia, probably, where you say the wrong thing, but she felt firmer and steadier every second. She was solid. She was herself for a little while yet. I am okay, yes, I'm quite all right now. My apologies. Alexa, you, are you, what was that? Do you want to sit down, rest? The girl's pretty, concerned face was suspended beside them. Jemmy still hold, held her up. He was the solid one. He was the mainstay. She thought of his mother, an intelligent woman, if depressive. Worlds apart, the first wife and the second. A woman and then a girl. Paul knew the difference. Even he knew. But for his purposes, he didn't give the shit. It had made her sad. She wanted to raise a finer man. I'll make it to the table, she told them. Paul was coming out the back door, finally. She stumbled, Laura called to him. But it was almost like she was having an attack or something. I'm all right now, she repeated, frankly. She felt like an ancient bride advancing along the garden path on Jeremy's arm toward the wedding feast. He'd give her away, but to whom? She was already given. She had given. She'd given all she had, and it was surely not enough, not by a long shot. So in many traditions, heaven was in the sky. It made sense. Up there where personhood dissolved, domin dominion of light and ether. Go on, just leave the earth. Your work here is done, Inf insufficient, but over with. But how much she loved this place. If only she could find someone to live in her home exactly as it was, not with its inside stripped away, but with everything, everything still in position, soft and careful, its every corner well disposed to company. If someone could exist there, on through time, and quietly appreciate the place the way she had, if they could know the small, unsayable beauties of that cherishment in all their singular detail, if she could hand that down inside her house. I may have failed, but I knew one precious thing. I knew what was beautiful. So take my home. Here, take the way I lived, nestled within these rolling hills. Take my view of the sky, and on a clear day, the ocean. You, too, will thank this life. Flooded with gratefulness, bow your head. All right, so we were just going to, um, you know, more or less throw it open to comments and questions and whatever. And you can ask things to me or you can ask things to Zandi about, I don't know, acting, say, and me about books or writing or, or blackmail material about video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. That's yeah. great. It's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any rituals around writing? Like, what's your practice? 
oh, you know, this is, I'm never helpful. <laughs> so, you know, I work, like I work um, about 30 hours a week um, at, uh, at my sort of, at my day job, and so my practice is to write whenever I have a spare moment. So sometimes it's just like 15 minutes or half an hour or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, it's not very, and then, um, and then sometimes on weekends for a couple hours at a time or something. So I write in little fits and starts. And it's not ideal, I don't really recommend it. But really the only problem is that you have to read yourself back into something every time you go back into it to remember what you were doing and to be in the prose and stuff, and that just takes time. So it's not an efficient way to, to work. But um, I do like to use a laptop. Um, I like to edit in front of the television sometimes. <laughs> um, like I like to have sort of just images and sound around. I like to work in um, bars. I have to limit that though. Um, I really like to, if I could just sit in a bar for, you know, five hours and just drink steadily as I wrote. I don't want to be like a cliche of an alcoholic. <laughs> but, uh, but it really is like, it, but let's, I do, like it is fun. It, it is, is really fun. fun. It's fun. Yeah. It's just better that way. Just, yeah. Let's call it spade. Yeah, spade to spade. Um, so, but I can't, yeah, I can't, I find I can't do that too often. Um, so yeah, but if I could do that every day, I'd be really productive until I drop dead. <laughs> In certain versions of, you know, certain theoretical versions of socialist utopias, there is no art, right? So, so you know, which I also think is not a good solution. It doesn't seem great to me. No. But that um, 
but but to have to put everything. Also, you know, humanism is like a you know pretty loaded term. I think I'd like to think that our work, our best art, goes sort of beyond the humanist into something else, sort of post-humanist. I'm sort of interested in that kind of that kind of vision that's not just humanistic. Um, but it's a huge question that you ask, obviously. You know. Those are good answers. Well, thank you. I'm sure. Um, you know, a theorist could do could do better with them. I do also think that in tough times, great art is and humor is great solace to people. So I'm not dismissing it at all. It saves lives. But I just absolutely. Thinking, you know, I just kept thinking, you know, what if what would even what would it even look like? You know, to have. I hope we find out. Uh, I'm here with a creative writing class of uh, cool. writers, uh, and uh, I guess wondering what uh, any advice you might have for young people, teenagers just starting out writing, um, where you started, and if there's anything that you can, words of wisdom you can share until they hit drinking. I was just actually. <laughs> I was just told a piece of wisdom about you know, well specifically actors starting out in Hollywood from Rita Hayworth which was always take fountain. <laughs> that is so true. Um, so yeah, so so I would just say for for writers anyway, um, to read, you know, just to read a lot, really, to, and to read things that uh, you don't naturally gravitate toward and that aren't just easy for you, and um, things in translation, you know, just things that um, maybe you don't like when you start reading them. Keep on going. Uh, so reading, first reading a lot, and I'm just, I, I, I'm always amazed by like writers that don't read, because it, <laughs> it seems like a problem, because you also have to, you know, I kind of approach writing as a reader, so I, only, I kind of make books that I want to read, like I try to make a book that I haven't read yet or whatever, and I don't always, you know, succeed in that, but, but usually when I sit down to write a book, I want to make sure I want to write something that I really haven't, I can't just like go into the store and grab off the shelf. And so, so I kind of write as a reader. And I also have this very simple-minded writing process where I just go from sort of beginning to end and I don't premeditate anything. And so I'm kind of like discovering things as the reader would. <laughs> like I'm just sort of understanding what's happening as I go along. Because I sort of think by writing. I don't know if you... What, what creative writing class is this? What, what institution or group? Or it's a USC summer program, so it's high school kids from around the world. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would just say, like, write to, read a lot and then write to please yourself. And um, for a while, don't listen to other people about your writing, which is great in a workshop setting, I'm sure. <laughs> don't you also, I mean, this is true with acting, and I assume it's true with writing, too, is meet people. Like, don't isolate yourself. Yeah, don't isolate yourself for a while. Like, just be open to, try to really be open to criticism. I think, like, when I stopped being really defensive, when people said um, negative things about my work, when I stopped being defensive is when I, when I started actually, um, you know, knowing what I was doing more. Just sort of assume that everything bad that anyone says about you or your work is entirely correct. <laughs> and then just go from there. I just wanted to Of course you have to learn to sort of like, of course, not, you need to learn who to listen to and whatever. But, but first just assume that people are right. Like, what if they are? Then how do you, you know, how do you go from there? 
I wanted to, I just wanted to say, because you're not going to say it, like your day job is like a very worthy thing. Oh, thank you. I like it. I like my immerses, immerses her in real world issues and problems and, 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 and she's trying to solve them. So it's not just a day job. It's like way more important. Than well, thank you. What's your day job? Uh, I, just, I work for a conservation organization. So we do climate change work and um, endangered species protection, that kind of thing. So it's mostly scientists and lawyers and then a few people like me and then people who raise money. Related to that, and I came in late. But did you ever have like a writing job that wasn't as glamorous or as? <laughs> <laughs> Are you baiting me? <laughs> <laughs> young writers starting out might not be novelists, right? right? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, mm -hmm. I've had a lot of writing and editing jobs that. Um, yes. That, <laughs> Not, uh, well, so, so I worked for Hustler Magazine for a while um, with a friend of mine over here. And, uh, but I was just like a copy editor on that magazine. And uh, also Hustler's Busty Beauties and some others I don't care to name. That's how we met. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she was also in the industry. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, SWAT for the Prepared American. <laughs> Fighting Knives, America's Most Incisive Cutlery Publication. Uh, yeah, so, so I worked on, but I didn't actually write that much for those magazines. It was mostly just copy editing, and I enjoyed that. And, uh, and let's see, I've had a bunch of small, I also had editing jobs. Like I worked for a, a producer of, of after school specials when those still existed in Studio City. They actually didn't really exist when I worked for her anymore, so it was kind of down, downhill situation. Um, and um, she threw a sparklets bottle at my head, like a big one, a big one, like one of those like five gallon. Yeah, those. Um, so, so I've had, I've, and then I just, um, I did, I've done a lot of freelance writing. So I did for a long time just cobble together different freelance sort of things um, until I decided to kind of work full time where I'm working now. But yeah, all kinds of. And um, I wrote book reviews. Those aren't always extremely lucrative, but you have to cobble together a lot of those. Um, yeah, but I've mostly done uh, conservation-related writing for the most part since I was an adult. So, like, from 30 on. Yeah, sorry, what was the question in there? Just what inspired you to write about that? Um, gosh, you know, I think I was, I was working on that story during the, um, during the election campaign, actually. But I also have, have in my job, done, uh, we do some work with tribes and things, and, um, and many advocates, um, American Indian advocates, are very interested in the way that the sort of 
you know, a lot of people argue about the term genocide. There's a lot of academic argument about when something qualifies as a genocide and stuff. Um, you know, what defines something as not a mass slaughter, but specifically a genocide. So there's, um, there's a semantic discussion around that. But um, a lot of tribal activists and stuff are um, pretty, uh, just kind of um, sort of amazed that that uh, that sort of mass slaughter doesn't get more play in the culture. Um, and the ongoing sort of, you know, um, the ongoing oppression of American Indians that, you know, is actually in the news all the time if you care to, if you care to look for it. And I've written, I wrote actually about this for the New York Times. I had an op-ed. I was a, like a columnist for about a year for the Times doing op-eds on political stuff. And one of them was actually about a specific matter where, um, you know, some sacred land was kind of seized and turned over to a mining company by Congress at, at this, in this sort of one of those backdoor deals they do. So I sort of got into writing about that stuff um, and so began to investigate more sort of like issues around, so American Indian problems in those communities and um, high levels, super high levels of crime and suicide and of course poverty still. And, um, yeah, so I was writing about some of those things while for, um, in a nonfiction context while I was working on the story collection. So. Does that make, is that to answer your question? Yeah. So this is a question for you. Oh. Um, that is very out of place. This is kind of like a book, you know, from about books. But I'm really interested in, like, the culture of the That's why I'm kind of in this creative writing class. But mm -hmm. you were in children's hospital? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> 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 you with adults with I mean, because I was in children's hospital. Uh, I I no, 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 it's okay. Uh, I had a lot of makeup. They, I had professional I, makeup on then, so I was probably. Yeah, sorry. Um, and longer so, hair. And longer hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also pregnant a lot of the time. <laughs> right? An extraordinary amount of the time. <laughs> so I, I have this one funny question. Are like the producers really like the producers? Or like, no. Oh, well, everyone in comedy is really immature. <laughs> no, they're not, I mean, all of them are family, they all have, they all, not family guy, but they all have kids, and I mean, they're goofy, but they're definitely, yeah, they're hilarious. But I don't know, I don't know anybody but the group that I was in, but they were all nice, hilarious, solid, fun, uh, professional people. Yeah. Uh, this question is for Lydia. How did your young adult novel come about? Are you going to be writing any more? I don't think that I will. I don't think the young adults of this nation fully appreciate me. <laughs> <laughs> Our kids certainly don't. Oh, yeah. My children definitely. Yeah, no. they, they don't read my work. Um, uh, so I did. So the so I wrote one young adult book uh, called Pills and Starships, but I still sort of have uh, I have a fondness for that book. And then I did a series of middle reader books. So that's like nine to twelve year olds. As you, yeah. So that yeah, no one knows about it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm telling you. The youth of this nation. Um, oh, but Lydia and I have um, sons that are like a couple of days apart. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I don't know who. And I know your children haven't read my books either. I think that's a pretty fair bet. I'm trying to get my kids to read any books. <laughs> <laughs> really 
So I started the um, the children's books in general were sort of summer projects for me, to, and I thought that you know that they might amuse the children at some point. But since that has not materialized, <laughs> no, I did read them the first of the middle reader books a couple years back, um, and then also I wanted to I wanted to be sort of overtly political in those books, and I, and they are much more. You know, the, the YA one is like very directly this sort of post-apocalyptic climate change novel. And I've just finished writing my first sort of literary novel that really directly, directly tackles also sort of visions of the world under climate change. Um, but back then I hadn't really done that directly. And, uh, and then the middle reader books are like about ocean acidification, always a very marketable term. <laughs> So I've got this trilogy about ocean acidification. I think I'm really gonna like. It's really sexy. The pH is dropping. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. And then there's also this thing happened with the third of those books where I had to. We decided to do three instead of four, and so I had to fit like the whole fourth book into one. So the third and fourth book became this one. So it's incredibly insane and condensed. And I'm not gonna lie to you. It's a mess. Um, but yeah, so I, I kind of enjoyed reading, re, writing those books and reading the first one to my children, but I just, I don't know if, you know, you're, people say about like middle reader books and YA books nowadays that you're supposed to be really sort of developmental with them and sort of understand, you know, what vocabulary, like what the lexicon is and the emotional sort of lexicon as well of different ages and stuff, and I just don't have the spirit for that, or the time for that, or the interest in that, and and myself, I read a lot of YA and children's literature. I've always loved it, and um, and what used to be called, you know, children's literature, um, and uh, is now sometimes more categorized as YA. I just I love it all, and I don't think it was as calculated as some of that stuff is now. I think it was just written because someone wanted to write it the way they wanted to write it, but. I do feel like maybe the industry is not not one that um, I just can't calibrate like that. I don't want to calibrate like that. But it is true that my middle reader books employ often vocabulary that no 12-year-old. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just kind of a little off the charts. Not that they're so lofty or anything, but just that I I didn't try I didn't try to dumb anything down or anything, um, and so maybe that doesn't work. I don't know. But they were fun to write at the time. Some of them. The Pills and Starships one I still like. Um, when you're writing YA or, or for television, um, like there's this wild rumor that you just have to hammer home the points. Is that the difference between literary fiction or is that like not a consideration? Like for a young reader, you might have to really take a theme and drive it to its, like, like you know, complete destination. I don't know. And I always wonder about the pacing of TV writing. So it's like everybody I know who has television writing experience has really good pacing in their Depend it depends on oh yeah. Well it depends on what kind of you know if it's sitcom or if it's something a little more experimental. Um, I think that that there's a lot more leeway now because people are there isn't just the networks. There's so many different, um, so many different venues for this stuff, and so, and so much, so much stuff that people can maybe go outside of that kind of thing. I mean, they all have their merits. They're all fun to do in different ways. 
but I, I don't write, um, I don't write sitcoms or anything. <laughs> I'm just a baby writer, but I, you, you probably know more than I do about that. Well, you read a lot of scripts and you've been around a lot of writing. Yeah, a lot of it is really bad. <laughs> I will say that. But the good stuff is like really good and you can tell immediately having read the really bad stuff most of the time. I don't think it's ever good advice for anyone writing for any demographic to hammer a theme home. I'll just say that's never, never a good idea. And I actually think YA stuff in particular, I mean, it, it can, what I've noticed most about the books my daughter reads, for example, she's 14, and she reads a lot of this like really dystopic or really relationship, like a very, a lot of suicidal kids or like terminally ill kids or whatever, like it is way more hardcore than adult literary fiction. It is ridiculous. Like there's this one, it's traumatic to read this shit. Um, so there was this one thing where this, I, I can't remember the name of this book, maybe someone here will recognize it, but this book that she loved um, features a child, uh, maybe preteen or something, or mid-teen, something like that, who, who's kind of like Helen Keller-like, or she doesn't have, she can't speak, I think she, no, she can see, but she's minus certain senses. She certainly can't speak. Anyway, she's in a car with her mother. Her mother's driving. She can't speak, and she sees her, like, toddler brother behind the car. <laughs> in her driveway. And she can't express to her mother that the toddler's behind the car. And it run over, dead. This happens. I was like... <laughs> I was like, that is so hardcore. This YA stuff, I, seriously. And I was like, I couldn't even, it just happened. Stuff like that all the time in YA books now, where you're just like, good God. It's like, you got the hormones going anyway. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I really think that like a lot of YA stuff is just, it's actually a lot more extreme emotionally. And also the dystopias are, it's just much more, it can be actually much more political and, um, yeah, it can be, it can really take on things. But I, yeah, it's not, I, I definitely don't think that anyone should be hammering anything home, metaphorically. Anyway, you, sir, did you have a question or were you just waving your hand around? Yeah, you. Me. You, my brother. <laughs> May I just say that I've just, I got distracted by the self-help books and they have some really interesting titles, like The Ethical Slut. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what Unfuck Your Brain. <laughs> The subtle art of not giving a fuck. There's like <laughs> some really good titles. It's like self-help has really taken a turn. It really has. It's, it's not your, not your grandma's it's self. Your, <laughs> it's not your '60s parents' self. No. Anymore. Where's all the peace and love? Yeah, exactly. It's more in fucking now. Where's all? Excuse me. Excuse my. Excuse my. Yeah, because I normally really children well here. Yeah, there are many children. Anyway, were there other questions, comments, or anything? Also, um, I think I'm going to sign or something back here, so if you, there's anything you want to ask me about but you don't want to say in front of people, you can just come talk to me back there. And Sandy, I'll, I can't really say that on your behalf. If there's anything personal you want to ask Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for coming tonight. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, 
and we hope to see you soon.